All right, we're on. Cool. All right. So we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, um, which recounts the early days of the church after Jesus has been taken up into heaven. And we've been learning about what happens when the early church, the followers of Jesus, are filled with the Spirit. And um, last week, Lizzie taught us that the church's call is to learn, love, worship, and go share the gospel. And today we're going to be looking at three aspects of the gospel. Um, This good news that the disciples were given. Now, the three aspects don't give a complete summary of it, not by a long shot. The gospel is far too rich and deep for it to be given in three points, or dare I even say four steps. (laughs) Um, But what I have found incredible about the book of Acts is that it records multiple moments where the early disciples preach the gospel for the first time, and we get to listen in on what they emphasized and what convinced thousands of people to be saved. Um, In our first sermon in Acts, I highlighted some themes that the author Luke tends to focus on, uh, both in his gospel narrative and in the book of Acts. Um, Today we're going to see themes of prayer, uh, poverty, suffering, and the temple and the priesthood. So let's just dive right in, Acts chapter 3. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. And so he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were all filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. And so we start the story with the setting. Peter and John are off to the temple, and it's three in the afternoon. And so why exactly are Peter and John going to the temple? It's a little detail that it's easy to miss, but it relates to one of our major themes in Luke and Acts, and they are going to the temple for the time of prayer. Prayer is and continues to play a major part in the disciples' lives. And next week, we'll dig into this theme a little deeper, um, but it's important that Peter and John are going to the Jewish temple. And the temple is another major theme in Acts, but more than this, I think Acts 3 is telling us something that we often, I think, misunderstand about the early Christians. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I feel like we tend to think that the early followers of Jesus converted from Judaism to Christianity. But a conversion means a moving from one set of beliefs to another. It's a rejection of one for the embrace of the other. But this story shows that when Peter and John start following Jesus, they didn't renounce their Jewish faith. In fact, faith in Jesus as Israel's promised king is so rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, I would wager that this made them press in all the more to their Jewish heritage. In Jesus, the Son of God, Yahweh had finally returned to redeem his people out of exile. 
So when Luke tells us that it was about 3 in the afternoon when Peter and John went to the temple for a prayer meeting, it means they were literally headed to the temple to get together with their fellow Jewish friends and family to pray and seek Yahweh together. They did not abandon their Jewish faith, but their faith was transformed. And it's this faith that is going to allow God to work through them in an incredible way. And so Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray, but there is another man in this story. Luke describes how this man is being carried by his friends to the entrance of the temple where he sits day after day calling out to people passing by. He is carried because since the day he was born, he's had a physical impairment. He can't walk. And so in a society that typically relies on one to have two functioning pairs of legs in order to work, the man is poor and has, not, and has to not just rely on his friends to carry him there, but also has to rely on the financial mercy of those coming to worship Yahweh. And even if he longed to join in that temple worship, his financial situation prevents him because time is precious and he has to spend it pleading for mercy and compassion from others. It's safe to say that he's probably never attended the 3 p.m. prayer meeting, though many meeting attendees have seen him over the years. And probably some have had compassion on him and come over and handed him some silver, but others, perhaps a priest or a Levite, have chosen instead to pass by on the other side. But as Peter and John approach this man, it seems like they are both on the same wavelength because in unison, they both stop. They pause and they look at the man and they ask the man to look at them. They ask him to do that so that he recognizes that they see him truly see him. They are not going to walk past him today. Now, Peter is quick to tell the man he doesn't have any money to give, but Peter knows that Jesus has poured out the wealth of his Holy Spirit on the church. So in Jesus' name, Peter tells the man to stand up, but he doesn't just command it. No, he reaches out, takes the man's hand, and Peter starts to pull him up. And I'm sure that as Peter pulls the man up, He feels the man's grip tightening. He sees the surprise in the man's widening eyes, and he hears the man gasp in wonder as strength flows through his body. His legs don't cave beneath him. He, the man, is standing, and God's spirit is moving. Strengthen weakening hands, steady the shaking knees. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is here. He is here in power. And the man's response, well, he starts leaping, dancing, and praising God. I don't know if you guys ever heard that song as a kid. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Did anybody? Yeah? Some nods? Good. I'm not alone in that. Yeah, so there's like a, there's a, so- a kid song that goes through this whole story. It even mentions how Peter and John went to pray. They met a layman on the way. He asked for alms and held his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Anyways, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a good song. It includes most of the details, which is cool. So... Um, even the prayer bit, which is, which is awesome. So we're teaching kids good things. Um, but from this joyful response, it is clear that for this man, his disability was a burden. And while he was begging out loud for money, the plea in his heart was for healing. But I also just want to say really quickly that this might not be the case for all people with disabilities. For seminary, Ashlyn actually wrote a research paper on disability and healing in the kingdom of heaven. And one of the key arguments that Ashlyn found was that for some people, their disability is so fundamental to their identity 
that it might not be their disability that Jesus heals in his kingdom, but maybe it's society's attitude toward them that needs the healing. Maybe it's we who need to be healed in order for those with disabilities to live unhindered in our society. Anyways, it's a fascinating topic, so talk to Ashlyn if you want to know more. Um, But I just thought I'd mention that. But for this man, Luke clearly wants us to see that for him, healing brings joy. A joy he can't contain. This miracle is exactly what Mary, the mother of Jesus, proclaimed at the start of the Gospel of Luke when she said, the Lord has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Which brings me to my first point. The gospel is the exaltation of the vulnerable. And if you read through the Hebrew Bible, you will see that God is passionate about those of humble estate. And this goes beyond those with disabilities. Uh, This is the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Those specifically are three groups that get mentioned constantly by God in terms of when he's looking for justice in his people, he's looking for how is, are his people treating them? How do they treat the marginalized? And so when we as a church come alongside the vulnerable, we are displaying the good news of God. Jesus was criticized by wealthy scholars and theologians of his day specifically for eating and socializing with the outcasts of society. But these are the people that Jesus loved. These were his friends. And this is what the promised Messiah is like. This is our king. And we as followers get to participate in the good news that our king does not reject, but instead loves and lifts up the vulnerable. It is in lifting this man up that Jesus paves the way for him to come into the house of God and to be seen as equal among his Jewish brothers and sisters. The man who couldn't walk now walks into the temple with Peter and John And if the prayer meeting has started, it might have to take a bit of an intermission because people start to notice this man, and a crowd starts to gather, and people are astonished. Everyone recognizes this man as the one who sat beside the gate called beautiful every day. But how beautiful are the strengthened feet of those who bring good news. So let's just keep reading here. It says, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran towards them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, Fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate. Though he had decided to release him, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this, but faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect healing in front of you all. And I love that image at the start. The man has been raised up, his legs are working, but he just can't let go of Peter, right? And Peter doesn't push him away. While he preaches, this man is right there. And Peter then starts by stressing that this is not what he or John has done. This is the work of God, specifically the God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why does Peter specifically mention those three names? It's because these are the three patriarchs that God made a covenant with to bless the world through their offspring, through the Jewish people. But that's what God did back then. And so what is God 
that God of the covenant doing in Jesus today? And that's where Peter continues. He says that God has glorified Jesus. But interestingly, Peter does not describe Jesus as God's son, but as God's servant. And when we read a later chapter in Acts with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, this title of Jesus as God's servant will become very critical. But for now, it's good just to say that this isn't meant to be a demeaning term. Um, It's rather meant to play into the pattern of the Hebrew Bible of God's uh, God's faithful followers being called his servants. So, for example, Moses um, or Job, they're both called God's servants. Not to demean them, but to elevate their status as people who are committed to God. And this glorification is in sharp contrast with how Peter says that what the Jewish people have done, right? Notice that you language. You handed him over, you denied, and you killed. Peter is condemning their actions and in fact says that ironically, it's the non-believing pagan leader Pilate who wanted to free Jesus, but it's the people who still called out for him to be killed and for a murderer to be released. And so the stealer of life was released and the source of life was slain. However, I have to mention that this passage and others like it in scripture have been used to do appalling violence against the Jewish people. While yes, the Jewish people of Jesus' day did ask for his crucifixion, there were still many followers and disciples of Jesus who, contrary to this, actually wanted him to be king. And it's simply not true that the same crowd that sang Hosanna on Palm Sunday was the same crowd that shouted crucify him on Good Friday, no matter how tweetable that sounds. It truly wasn't the case, because why else would they arrest Jesus at night? You know, why else would they do the trials in darkness? No, there were Jews that were faithful to Jesus who did not want him to die. But it was the Jews that spoke up in the trial who ended up deciding the fate of our king. And they, like Adam and Eve, are representatives, not just of the Jewish nation, but of us. We are all culpable. Ultimately, Jesus took Barabbas' place, but no one offered to take Jesus's. Death still had dominion over the earth on Good Friday. People still lived in fear, and no one took up their cross and followed Jesus that day. And so while Peter is addressing the sins of the people of Jerusalem, their injustice to the vulnerable and their thirst for violence, the crowd is meant to be a mirror of the average human heart. We too cry out for blood. We too condemn the innocent. We too use suffering as a tool for justice. But Jesus' blood cries a better word because though we killed him, Jesus bo- or Peter boldly declares that God raised him from the dead. And this is where Peter connects the story of Jesus with this man born with disabled legs. Just as this man has now been raised up and is walking, so too Jesus who died and was buried has now been raised up and is reigning. Peter and John are witnesses. They have seen their king walking around by God's strength, and they even saw him raised up so high that the clouds took him away. The man in the temple is a living metaphor of the resurrection. He is a living metaphor of the ascension, which brings me to my second point. The gospel is the ascension of the Messiah. So yes, we killed the source of life, the person from which living water flows, but the same power that gave the man sitting outside the temple strength to stand up and walk is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. 
Jesus, the servant king, is now glorified by God, and he's been lifted up into the heavens. And this is good news. Though we killed the author of life, God released him from the shackles of death, and he is alive. We don't follow a dead king, but one who is alive, glorified, and reigning. And Peter continues the good news. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted, all the, all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of rest, the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to everything he tells you, and everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with his ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. And so echoing the words of Jesus from the cross, Peter also declares that the people of Jerusalem didn't know what they were doing when they crucified the Messiah. They acted in ignorance, and yet the people are guilty. But this was all according to God's plan. The Messiah was supposed to suffer. And while there isn't a chapter or verse that you can find in the Hebrew Bible that talks specifically about the Messiah must suffer, there are stories of people of God who experience suffering, whether that's the rejection of Moses' leadership, whether that's Job anguish at the hands of Satan, um, Joseph sold and falsely accused, the prophet Jeremiah thrown into a pit. These are all stories of God's faithful people who experience great suffering and opposition. And so God doesn't abandon his people in their suffering, but rather he enters into it and journeys it with us. He takes on that suffering, he takes on death and sin, and he vanquishes them forever. And so in God, sins are not just ignored, but in Jesus, they are fully wiped out. And so Peter calls the people to turn from violence. The kingdom of God is a message of repentance. And so while our world's sinful heart is made clear in the violence and injustice of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus' glorification is a signpost pointing us toward what is to come for those who repent. And just look at those words, seasons of refreshing. Right? Like a, like a tree planted by streams of water. And in turning back to God, we don't find anger or rage. We don't find that he's abandoned us. No, we find that God is there and there is joy and strength to be had. Fear is set aside. Strengthen the weak hands. Steady the shaking knees. But Peter doesn't just call people to turn back for seasons of refreshing. Somehow, in this mysterious way, when we repent and turn to God, this impacts the very return of Christ, right? It says, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send Jesus. Our repentance is linked to the very sending of Jesus. And Peter explains that heaven has to keep Jesus, right? Has, has received Jesus until the restoration of all things. This is something way bigger than just the salvation of individual hearts 
God is wanting to restore our whole planet, the whole of creation. As Paul will later write in one of his epistles, he says, all creation, the sky, land, and sea, it groans, waiting in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. In the children of God coming home, creation becomes one step closer to being fully restored. And so, but all this still comes with a warning, right? Um, Moses predicts about a future prophet who's going to be like him. And this, Jesus is, it, he, he, was like the, he was like Moses in the sense that he worked signs and wonders and he challenged the corrupt Pharaoh of his day and he took on sin and death and, in order to bring his people out of slavery. But unlike Moses, the signs that he gives aren't destruction and plague. Jesus brings healing and life. Jesus doesn't just turn water to blood, but turns water to wine. And so, but there's still a caution, right? There's still, even at the end of his sermon, he says, the Sermon on the Mount, he says that those who do not listen to these words are like somebody who builds their house on the sand. And so we do have to listen so that we can survive the storm. And so this is why week after week, we gather to read the scriptures. We gather to hear what Jesus has to say to us. We long for his wisdom to guide and shape our lives because when storms come, he is our anchor right? He is the one that we hold to. And as Peter explains, it's not just Moses, but all the prophets who point to this anchor, to our Messiah. It's, it's everyone. And so while this message that Peter speaks has hard language of accusation and warning, it's ultimately about blessing. It's, it's about that covenant that God made where all people in the world will be blessed. And so the time for the rest of the world will eventually come, but right now the call is for God's people, Israel, to turn away from the action that leads to death and turn back to him, to find blessing and to find refreshment and restoration. And once they do, they can pick back up that vocation of being the people that God had always planned, a light to the nations, a city on top of a hill that can't be hidden. They can call the world in to join the worship of Yahweh, to come join that temple 3 p.m. prayer meeting. Because Yahweh has returned to save his people. King Jesus is alive, and the highway is made through the wilderness, out of exile, back to God, out of death, and back to life. This leads me to my final point, that the gospel is the resurrection of all things. It starts with the Jewish people, but then it spreads through the nations and ultimately through the world. When we see Jesus being raised, we see creation being raised. When we see the man with disabled legs being raised, we see Jesus being raised. Each is meant to be a picture of the other. The new life of God's spirit that God's spirit gave to Jesus is the same new life that's in creation. And what did the man with a disability have to do to be raised? Just like the people, the Israelites in the wilderness, all they had to do was look to the bronze serpent and they were healed. That's all this man has to do is look. Look to the person who's talking to him. And look to that source of the spirit of Jesus. And so just like that today, we today get to gather to look to Jesus. And sometimes our faith isn't always there. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's strong. But some days it's hard. And so the thing that's interesting about this story is that while faith has a part to play, it's not the faith of the lame man. It's the faith of the healer. And we have a healer who is Jesus, who he showed tremendous faith as he trusted God 
because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he did that for you, he did that for me, he did that for our coworkers, our fellow classmates, the person who checks our receipts at Costco, he did that for the man sitting outside the temple 2,000 years ago. And you know, sometimes I think we sensationalize stories of physical healing, but we have to remember that it's all pointing to something deeper. Any physical healing in this unrenewed world is temporary. Death comes for everyone, right? At some point, that man who leaped up and walked around, he laid back down and didn't get up because death even got a hold of him. But the Jewish hope and the Christian message is that once the sun has set on that last day of this era, a new era begins, one of resurrection, one where we will all, all of us who have been laid to rest, will awake from our slumber and rise again because Jesus is our king and has been raised, and death no longer has dominion over him. The ultimate healing is still to come. And so we wait, right? And sometimes God uses us to heal, but also sometimes, like the friends of the man, God uses us to carry through the days, day after day. You know, that man we find out later, he was there, he's 40 years old. He's been there day after day at the temple, and Jesus walked by him during that time. Jesus went to the temple, and he didn't heal him. Sometimes Jesus doesn't heal us. And sometimes we're just meant to carry and be there for somebody else. But sometimes Jesus does heal. And this man is a showing of both, right? Where God heals and where God doesn't. In him we see both. But this is the good news that we get to be a part. We get to partner with God. The gospel is relational. It reaches out, it lifts up, and it doesn't let go. This is the good news. This is resurrection. Resurrection is the healing that never dies. Resurrection is hope unshackled. Resurrection is a road through the wilderness, through that desert, through that dry time, but it's leading us back home. So let's just close with this passage from Isaiah. It says, They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God, vengeance is coming, God's retribution is coming, he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy, joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. The gospel is the exaltation of the vulnerable, the ascension of the Messiah, and the resurrection of all things. And a way has been made for us all to come into that joyful worship. So as we go into this week, how can we come alongside and exalt the vulnerable? How can we lift them up? And how does the reality that Jesus has ascended and is glorified change how we view the world? And how can we partner with Jesus in his plan to restore and resurrect all things. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't, doesn't abandon us. God, you are present here with us and that your spirit is moving. And God, I thank you that while sometimes you don't heal, you are still present and you are still there and you are still using your church to be people who look out and lift up those who are lowly. And so, God, I just pray that as we go into our week, that we would have our hope in you, 
that though we might feel like we're going through a time of wilderness, we are still trees planted by streams of living water. And God, that water pours through us, and it overspills into this world. And so may people who are thirsty come and find drink and refreshment in us, because we are people who are people of the way. We are people of you. God, I pray that you would use us, and use us boldly. In your name, amen.